Welcome back to the Corner of Story and Game, where we have lively conversations with people who are passionate about storycraft and game design. I'm your host, Gerald Ford, a gamer and writer who just can't get enough of the endless possibilities of gaming and storytelling. And today, I am thrilled to announce our special guest, the one and only Ed Greenwood. If you don't already know, Ed is a legendary Canadian writer and game designer, best known for creating the iconic Forgotten Realms universe. But there's so much more to him than that. He's also a prolific author, world builder, and even a theater lover and librarian. He's been crafting amazing content for tabletop role-playing games, video games, and novels for over four decades now. So let's dive right in and hear all about his creative process, his inspirations, and how he's managed to stay on top of his game for so long. Did you, did you actually, were you a stagehand? Have you ever done that before? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. We used to do stuff like the stage, uh, how the Grinch stole Christmas. When he, we'd grab a fiberboard delivery box and write Christmas on it. And one of the stagehands would run on stage and put it there. And when the lights went up, the Grinch would run on stage, see the box and go, ha ha, and steal Christmas. Except of course, if you didn't like the guy who is putting the box out, you brought the house lights up when he was in mid stage. <laughs> and he looked up at the audience and said, Oh, fuck, or something like that, which was really good for a school production full of parents, you know? It's oh, fantastic. <laughs> good stuff. And, and, and the really terrible things. Um, the guy who absolutely had to pee mid stage. <laughs> so we went running out with a thermos because we had a black thermos. And, and then we had to make noises so people wouldn't hear the. The horse peeing into the bottle, <laughs> echoing noise of. <laughs> we had to provide, la, 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 you know, as if a radio had been turned on. So we're going, click. Where was this? Like This is our school theater, which had a stage and lighting crew because they had a um, uh, theater arts program. And we had to put on umpteen productions, which meant you had people who were skilled and people who were less than skill <laughs> all because they all had to get grades so they all had to participate right and then there was the guy who who um thought he'd just lick his fingers to get some dirt off them and then touch the 200 or 400 <laughs> amp power panel oh yeah and get get literally blowing off the platform onto the stage to fall thump onto the wooden floor in front of his parents oh my good lord and his mother goes bye <laughs> And stands up and, and rushes the stage. Oh. And all of the rest of us are trying to make it appear as if that's part of the production. And it's supposed to happen. And she's a plant. <laughs> wow. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> it's all right. He survived when yeah, he came to. Yeah. So it's a funny story now. <laughs> yeah. He said, do I get an A for this? <laughs> so <laughs> the. the so the the instructor gave him an A just for the chutzpah. He said, okay, that deserves an A right there. If you can collect your wits at this moment and do that, you, you, you're, you're a natural born actor kid. Yep, Here yep. you go. Here's an A. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I get the feeling we barely, barely dipped into the well that is Mr. Greenwood. I, I think. <laughs> hey, I was, I, I born in the fifties, child of the sixties. And the idea was live your life, experience everything. You write what you know. So if you want to write about waking up in a graveyard at dawn, wake up in a graveyard at dawn. If you Again, oddly specific example. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. But I mean, we did all that stuff. Um, 
it, it was yeah mm-hmm. you, you had to try things yeah yeah and my father would say well you know son um there's going to be a grave waiting for you somewhere anyway don't you want to find your grave after you've lived a little you know actually done something not just wasted 40 or 50 or if you're lucky 80 or 90 years waiting for the grave do something fill your life up with stuff you moved into building tabletop role-playing games moving into working for tsr on dungeons and dragons but there was no tabletop role-playing games when you were a youth so obviously something else had to have planted that seed that love of fantasy and make-believe and where did that come from or have we already talked about it for the last 15 minutes no 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 that was all later um <laughs> Uh, all the stuff we talked about was later. Um, okay, so uh, we began. Let's go back to your childhood, childhood. No, okay. Um, so um, my mom dies when I'm six. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm already allowed to read everything in my father's den. Um, I'm being raised by grandmas and maiden aunts who went through the Depression and two world wars in rural farmhouses they had no running water no electricity and uh they could all read because they had parents who insisted that they be able to read but that for the ladies that meant two things three things farmer's almanac the farm accounts and the bible so uh but i was reading everything and my father collected books all the way through um his childhood and like all book collectors he had no space so he built his own bookshelves and shelved things by size okay. or height, height of book, which meant you could find anything next to anything. Um, uh, when in my youth, a first edition Lord of the Rings in hardcover was bracketed by The Robe by Lloyd Douglas and The High White Forest by Ralph Allen, a battle of the novel of the Battle of the Bulge. Okay. I, I would come running upstairs with a book. My father, who worked um, at that time um, in missile defense um, and radar installation in the height of the Cold War, would tend to have, if he had anybody in the house at all in the evenings, it would be high muckety-mucks from the Department of Defense, generals, et cetera, like, and, and they'd be sitting around talking. And I'd go pounding up the stairs with Owl Hoot Trail. She was staked out nude in the sun to die. Or um, the nymph said no. I spent my entire childhood searching for the nymph said yes and never found it. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it these wartime, lurid wartime paperbacks, give one to a friend in uniform. And I would wave it at my father and I would say, dad, dad, this was great. Where's the next one? And he'd be, oh, son, maybe later. Uh, <laughs> he'd say, he'd say, oh, son, that, that author died in 1938. If you want another one, you're just going to have to write it yourself. And I go, okay. And I go pounding back down the stairs to the den where my aunt Clara, like all good farm girls had collected all the brown paper bags that we got groceries in ironed them flat with the iron sliced up the sides with the kitchen cleaver because that's what farmers wrote on in the depression they didn't buy paper they had no money for buying frippery like paper you saved everything so all of us kids my my younger sisters with crayons and me writing with a big engineer's pencil um would write stuff and i would write pastiches horrible stuff but i was learning how to write like lord dunsany and seabury quinn and fritz leiber and robert e howard and any one that caught my eye i was learning how to write in their style usually without much of a plot so i was starting to write yeah and the realms was my 
escapism as a lonely kid into the world of fantasy. It was high fantasy, Lord Dunsany, lovely landscapes, but Robert E. Howard, Fritz Leiber, lunch bucket, low fantasy in the foreground, the action that's going on. Right. So humans were being humans. A few, a few of them might have snake heads like Howard's King Cull um, and so on, but they, they were essentially humans swindling humans. So I was writing those for my own entertainment a decade before there was D&D. Now, there were war games. There right. were all the war games that my father's stuff played, and they were all variants of Kriegspiel. We have the German name, but it, the ancient Romans had it too. It was it was to train your officers in fog of war by having maps and everybody in separate rooms and sending commands by errand boys. Well, okay, errand officers, but errand boys, and seeing how much you things got twisted. Um, I was also reading all the books by Donald Featherstone, who was a uh, British war gamer who did battles with model soldiers. That was his one book for one publisher, and he had about 80 books for another publisher. And in the end, I read them all, and they were all about taking tiny airfix model soldiers, two boxes of them, for one for each side, and then making a scenario that would fit on a sand table or a ping pong table or your kitchen table, and you could play it in a couple hours. But he always gave the historical context, whatever it was. So you were learning how to simulate in the same way that D&D tries, says, okay, you want to try something? Roll some dice. It was like, uh, and he literally took the Kriegspiel thing of where you take the map and you rule it into a grid and you glue matchboxes together because many people who smoked pipes and so on in those days, they bought matches in boxes. You made a little dollhouse dresser of glued together matchboxes in a grid that matched the map. And you moved your forces with a tiddlywink or a, a poker chip or some small marker. And when you opened a drawer on the map and the enemy's tiddlywink was in there, you stopped, you do a, did a sand table to match the map and you fought that tiny little thing. So that was the wargaming thing. And also Life Magazine, believe it or not, had tiny little one or two page wargames. But they were improving war games. They weren't games for gaming's sake. They were always American Civil War, like Shenandoah Valley or Lee versus, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. Lee versus Grant in this thing. And it was to teach you why people did the things they did in real life and how it might have changed if somebody had arrived sooner or later or whatever. So they were cloaking it in a historical thing. But they'd have a very simple hex-based, in other words, SPI style or Avalon Hill, Panzerblitz style, if you prefer, uh, war game. And it laid out the objectives. This side wins if they hold off the other side for this many rounds. This side wins if they reach this Gettysburg or whatever, you know. Um, so I would never play those because I had no one to play them with. But I'd take pennies and I'd put them on the published map in the flattened out magazine. And I'd pretend play them. And then I'd, I'd do exactly what my father had taught me to do with chess which is you play one side, then you spin the board around and play the other side. You spin the board around again, and you play yourself, da 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 and you, you try and beat yourself. Um, and my father was a, a master at chess, not a, not a grandmaster, but a master, because he didn't play enough to be um, a grandmaster. But I managed once to get him in a fool's mate, once in all the thousands of times of us playing together. And boy, did I feel chuffed that I'd done that, you know, hmm. at the time. It was like, ah, and he goes, 
that's pretty good, son. You actually were paying attention for once. <laughs> oh, thanks, Dad. <laughs> but but I mean, you know, but but it was so I enjoyed the gaming, and then there were some seminal books. There's a whole bunch of them, from Alice in Wonderland to Dalla Vipkar's much later Warlock of Night, which take a chess game. And it's a story. You're reading fiction, but it's a chess game, a live chess game being played in front of you. And you think, oh, okay, so we can do this. So this is all before D&D. So that's how the realm is, is starting. I'm telling stories of Mert the Moneylender, who is a Falstaff from Shakespeare, yeah, um, um, put together with Paul Anderson's uh, Nicholas Van Rin from the Pulse of Technically, put together with Guy Gilpatrick's drunken Scottish engineer, Glenn Cannon in all the men's magazine stories of the 50s. Glenn Cannon was this drunken Scottish engineer as this tramp freight steamer that he was the engineer for, traveled the world. He was always trying to barter or swindle something like this many cases of Duggan's Dew of Carcantillic, which was his favorite whiskey, for something that like bananas or something or steaks or something that he could then sell at a huge profit and get himself out of debt or give the captain enough money to fix the leaking hull. And therefore he had huge amount of influence. The captain, oh, where did you get this Glen Cannon? Oh my God. And sort of thing. Um, and so I put the, those three things together and came up with Mert, the moneylender, who is my viewpoints character for the realms, not Elminster. Really? Yeah. And we, we Merch. went, we went around the, uh, Oh yeah. It was TSR who'd said, well, you all have to have signature characters. Why don't you use this unreliable narrator guy? Your Elminster. You see, Elminster knows too much. He right. should never be your point of view character. But he was very good for doing the character that almost nobody alive today remembers was Ronald Reagan's greatest role. Well, I mean, you could argue his greatest role was pretending to be president <laughs> for a couple of years. But but um, his favorite role to me was in Death Valley Days. He was the narrator at the beginning of this TV Western. The camera would pan in on him and he'd say, well... It was an exciting time in the, the valley this week. Let me tell you about it. And the harp strings would pull and the camera would go up and over his shoulder into the episode. And it would stay in Death Valley until the end of the episode when it pulled back. And sure enough, he'd be sitting there saying, wow, that was something. See you next week. You know, so yeah. <laughs> um, Alminster was my unreliable narrator doing that role. And. They all wanted us to do signature characters. And I said, that's a mistake, but okay, I'll do it. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. No. <laughs> <laughs> Mert, like, um, honestly, I would have thought Volo, like Elminster is the one that you're best known, but Mert. <laughs> Volo was made up later. Okay. That was, that was Jeff Grubb saying, we need an unreliable narrator who can survive all this stuff. You see, Mert is just, he's a, He's smart. He used to be a mercenary captain when he was younger, but he's now old, fat, and wheezing. He can't outrun anybody, and he can't outfight them, so he has to outwit them. But there's nothing to keep him alive. Volo is a weave anchor, although he doesn't know it. So Mr. and Azuth are his guardian angels, although he doesn't know it. Mm -hmm. And they also order the Chosen to be his guardian angels because they have to keep him alive. And he has a little innate magic of, of his own, so he can survive all the shenanigans he gets up to so that's how comes volo came along and volo is named for the volo bog which is just south of um lake geneva if you're if you're driving out up route 12 past uh nippersink and richmond and in out of illinois and into you pass the volo bog hmm. 
So um, Jeff just swiped that and said, okay, let's call him Volo. And I said, okay. And so I came up with Volo Samp Gedarm and, and gave him a history. And then, and because I had to explain why this unreliable narrator could be such a prat right. and still stay alive. I talked with Jeff, I don't know, six months ago now or something. And he shared the stories about how when you came on with TSR, there was boxes of stuff that were shipped to the office. But the thing that, the item of legend that caught my curiosity was this map that they said was stuck up around the office and everybody referred to this map. And was this like a hand-drawn map? Was this your your baby? Was this your homebrew? Okay, that's the master map. It is not the master map. The master map is right behind me now because <laughs> it was... Um, drawn on 55 pages, eight and a half by 11 pages in faint HB pencil. And Jeff had already warned me, don't entrust anything to the mails that you don't have a copy of. Right. Very wise advice because there's a package from the realms I sent in 1986 that is still on the way. <laughs> oh no. Don't worry. It's not lost because I had a photocopy, you know? <laughs> um, but what I did was use the shamelessly use the photocopier at the library I worked at. Don't worry. I paid for the copies. Any member of the public can also use it. No skull diary, but I climbed all over the photocopier with these eight and a half by 11 pages, made them larger because photocopiers at that time distorted or left out the edges. So I used a larger size of paper and then trimmed it down. And I also darkened it by leaving the lid of the photocopier up. So the faint HP pencil became dark black lines. Hmm. So the, the famous map, what happened was um, I would send these packages and Jeff, to the great amusement of his coworkers, would embark on unwrapping them with, you know, gun, camera, scissors, swords, saws, <laughs> and fight his way inside the thing. And then he'd unearth everything. And in this case, he had to tape together with cello tape, Alex Cameron now has this famous map on the ceiling of the game hole. Wow. And he taped together the 55 pages. And they promptly lost my typed key because I knew my handwriting was illegible. So I took every single paper, piece of paper, and put it in my father's ancient Underwood 8. And the Underwood 8 is great because its plate is about three feet long. Mm-hmm. So you can put a paper in at all angles to type something at the same angle that I'd hand drawn it on the map. And I gave a map key and which I say, as I said, they must've promptly lost because they kept misreading my name anyway. <laughs> um, but Jeff had taped together all of these and he colored all the close coastlines with blue marker. And then he put a yellow gold marker highlight behind important names like realms or kingdom names. And then he'd put little green lime green marker around the edge, the scalloped edges of all the large forests. So when you looked at it, you could sort of see what all these turkey tracks all over the map meant. And then they sank my moonshades and taped theirs over top of them. So Alex's map in the game hole has their moonshades taped over mine. Hmm. I keep I keep forgetting to bring Alex the original moonshades, but um, by re-photocopying. But I have <laughs> the master map here behind me. So that's the famous map. And I also sent about another 80 maps in those packages because I had city maps for Suzale, Marsember, and they all had keys. And I did my keys in uh, the very simple way of having a map, which I could then photocopy really dark, then laying a sheet of blank paper of the same size over it, then drawing little key numbers, one, two, three. So you just laid one over the other, held it up to a light, and you could see the map 
through the numbered thing. And then I typed a, a numbered key so I could hand an unadorned map to the players and the dungeon master would have a complete keyed one. And then I drew a whole bunch of maps later for the Forgotten Realms Adventures. I drew all the cities of the realms and, and I drew Menzo for the, the Menzo box set and ruined a bedspread in this very room that we're <laughs> sitting in now. <laughs> um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask. I don't want to talk about Baldur's Gate much, but I'm curious. Baldur's Gate back then compared to what we see in Baldur's Gate 3 now. How much difference? How much has it changed oh, over the, the decades? the upper city has arrived outside the walls. The upper city existed in my realms, but it wasn't mapped. Okay. Because the whole point of it was the guards did not allow you to build any permanent buildings outside the city walls. Because if you were doing that, why weren't you paying taxes? Mm -mm. So they would force you to move along. So the upper city was mainly ox shit, horse shit, <laughs> large paddocks, dust mud because that's where the caravans assembled mustered and and dispersed there were paddocks everywhere there were temporary warehouses everywhere and i didn't bother to map it now it's mapped or it got mapped actually um for murder in Baldur's gate the uh the fourth edition or dnd next product um which which is what larian used as their master maps and they also added the outlying uh upriver settlements the bridge that those settlements were leading to on mm -hmm. both sides and Baldur's Gate on the south bank. So that's what's different. But the original city of the bowl of the city, sheltered by the peninsula where all the wealthy people live, the Seaward Peninsula and all of that, that's all original. Hmm. And and uh, Larian is basically working off the maps of from the Murder in Baldur's Gate product. And, and Murder in Baldur's Gate, the adventure was written by Steve Winter and Matt Cernet, who were in-house. And the guide to the city, the lore guide, was written by me because I could do that out of house and just hand it all to them. Right. Hmm. Seeing, uh, being from Alberta and Bioware being kind of the hometown heroes here, I'm also curious, when they did Icewind Dale, Neverwinter Nights, the original, the, the start, were you involved? Did they touch base with you and, and pick your brain at all? I'm just curious. Directly involved, no. Um, it was uh, the direct involvement was George McDonald and SSI earlier, the Gold Box computer games. Yep, yep. What was happening is Jeff and the staffers were dealing with Bioware and Black Isle and Interplay and all the rest of it because that was, I was a freelancer. They were freelancers. It was an outside license. But what would happen is J Jeff phoned me weekly, at least weekly, and we used. TSR's FedEx account stuff was winging its way back and forth from the public library where I worked to TSR constantly. And he would do things like phone up and say, hey, Ed, is it okay if we use Neverwinter Nights? Because Neverwinter Nights was a newspaper in the realms. It was a broadsheet right. published in Neverwinter. It was the um, twice a week guide to the taverns, clubs, who was playing there, who was taking their clothes off and dancing, who was <laughs> performing music, da, 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 da. Yeah. It was sort of like the nightlife magazine, as opposed to the daily broadsheets, you know, man stabbed on Severn Street. You know, um, these were the, hey, don't miss Mitzi and her famous dancing goblins. <laughs> you know, um, so that was never winter nights. So he says, do you mind if we steal the name of it and use it for an outside computer game? I said, not at all. That'll be fun. I'll get to see never winter nights. So, yeah, <laughs> that's how I got involved. It was always through Jeff. 
Cool. Or later, through the later realms, traffic cops, the Julia Martin, Steve Shedd. Right. Along the way, was there like a pivotal moment? Was there something that happened that led you down this path where, you, you know, you could have ended up doing something completely other? Or has it been a series of those along the way kind of thing? I, I have always had a day job at the library. Right. I still have it. So if you mean down the garden path of writing for D&D. Yeah. I, I was just writing for Dragon. And I was the ideas coming from my home realms campaign, which we were playing in the realms by 1978 regularly. Um, I felt it was fairer to my players to spring something on them that had been published in Dragon that was in the realms. Right. And everybody read Dragon in those days, not just Dungeon Masters, everybody read it. But we didn't bring it to the gaming table. So I figured your hazy memories of something I wrote that had been published two years ago simulated your player character having heard something about it in a tavern or seen one being cut up by a, an alchemist or whatever and going, what the hell, what's that? You know, um, instead of having rules lawyers at the table who would go, oh, that's a Zoblob. Uh -huh. It's got five plus five hit dice. And if we yell Thursday, it'll fall over dead. You know, um, so, but I also felt it was fairer because it had been through the hands of an editor. If I'd done something egregiously unfair, it would have been fixed or rejected. Hmm. Now, as it happens, they made very few changes other than to prune things for length uh, thingies. But, um, and in one egregious case, the wingless wonder, they pruned the whole reason for the monster existing. So it just became a silly monster rather than the realm's lore reason that all went, but that I was just publishing in dragon and little, little be known to me. They had just hired a journalist, Kim Mohan, who tragically died, you know, last year. And he came from the world of journalism, not the world of gaming. And he contacted me just from the regular things, because he was my contact for all the stuff I was writing and said, Hey, are you coming to Gen Con this year? And I said, I am now. <laughs> so um uh this this would have been my uh third Gen Con. Uh I did Gen Con eight, I did Gen Con thirteen, and then this would have been Gen Con seventeen. So I took the Greyhound bus to Gen Con <laughs> and met Kim and he said, Let's go for a little walk. And that was in Wisconsin Parkside. So we could just go to the nearest glass door, bang it open, and be strolling through a park like green grass setting. He said how'd you like to be a contributing editor? And I said, yes, great. Uh, how much do I get paid? And he says, uh, that's the contributing part. <laughs> <laughs> See, cause it was not a salary position. What it meant was, as he explained to me, it gave them an excuse to publish articles by me every month because I'd be on the masthead. When some guy who'd written an article that they didn't like, They'd been sitting on for three years and it was like, what the hell's with this Greenwood guy getting everything? So it's like, okay, it was a sort of sop for that. And what Kim was really searching for is he'd, he'd asked me some questions at one point. And I said, oh, I was a journalism student at Ryerson. And he said, oh, good, a journalist. And what he's thinking is, I finally have somebody I can ask for them to write on spec to order. I need an article on goblins. I need it to go with this piece of art and I need it by tomorrow. Because every issue of the magazine is expanding or contracting by eight or 16 page signatures because of the way paper is cut 
and because the magazine is living or dying with its ads. So if you get more ads, you suddenly need to f- more filler. All those articles, folks, were just filler between the ad. Anyway, but you, it would be really nice if it was on the theme of the issue. So it didn't look like he just picked up a random. So I, that was the way I got published so often. I wrote short little filler articles that a, an editor could easily shoehorn in between things rather than big articles that an issue had to be based around. Right. And I wrote a whole bunch of uh, perennial topics because I saw the cycle in Dragon of what they were publishing. So I just, I filled his inbox with stuff mm-hmm. and it was like, oh, wonderful. Now, could if you could just write on this, if you could just write on so that that's how I, and because I felt it, I'm Canadian, so I'm inherently shy. It doesn't sound like it now, but that's because my <laughs> father beat me around the head when I was very young and said, son, you're trapped on this planet with billions of people. You cannot avoid them. You cannot go through life not speaking to anybody and blushing and looking down whenever anyone talks to you. You have to learn to deal with people. Look them in the eye and talk to them. So I I learned and overcompensated, as you can see. But <laughs> it was it was like I felt it was incredibly arrogant to write an article that says, Hi, my name's Ed Greenwood, and I've thought of a new way of rolling dice that none of you schmucks were smart enough to think of. So it was like, ah, but if I, I could use the realms to give examples in play and I could have a minster as my unreliable narrator and he could be ruder than I could ever dare hope to be in person. And he could also be nonspecific, knowing that every player read this magazine. Elminster could say, instead of me as the omniscient narrator saying, there are three orcs in room eight and their hit points are, because after all, you're paying for this gaming aid. We right. better be helpful. Um, Melminster could say, it's rumored that there are orcs in those ruins, but I don't credit it myself. So I planted the DM's idea, yeah. but I've given full plausible deniability. So if he's got a rules lawyer at his table, say, wait a minute, there's three <laughs> orcs in that room. Uh, really? <laughs> are you are you a mind reader? Oh, you read a magazine. Don't believe everything you read in magazine. Uh, anyway, um, so that's why Elminster. So I was merrily publishing all this stuff. And what happened was uh, Gary was forced out of TSR. They needed, they didn't want to um, give him any more money for Greyhawk. So they designed their own new world, Kryn, for Dragonlance, which right. took all the company's resources for two years. It was one big epic story, which they knew would sell. But just like a one big epic story, as uh, the Eddings is discovered with the Belgariad and anybody who loved the Lord of the Rings discovered, what do you do for an encore? Well, save the world a second time. Or in the case of Kryn, show them the other side of the world. But they had poured everything into this epic. It had cost huge amount of resources. And what they really wanted, and Jeff wrote a white paper for inside the company and not unpublished outside the company, white paper saying a proposal for a unified game world for the second edition of D&D. And that was the kitchen sink world. So they could take the desert of desolation modules, which had pyramids in them. Mm -hmm. They could take the Albion campaign that Doug Niles had written for TSR UK before it became an all reprint house and shoehorn it into the realms. So they sank my moonshades and put his moonshades in their place. And it was, uh, we're going to have a living jungle, Malatra. We're going to have uh, Arabian adventures, which became Al-Hadim. Right. We're going to have Oriental Adventures, which became, <gasps> wait for it, Oriental Adventures. <laughs> uh, but it was the kitchen sink world, and they rammed everything into it. And 
Jeff had been reading Dragon like everything everybody else did. Um, and he said, he phoned me, cold called me at the library and said, hey, do you have a complete detailed world at home or do you make it up as you go along? And I said, yes. And yes. And he said, good, send it. And he said, wait a minute. I didn't say that. Have you got a pencil and paper? And I said, Jeff, it's a public library. <laughs> I do indeed have a pencil and paper. He goes, good. Write down this number. And he says, now call it after six o'clock your time, which is 5 p.m. my time. I said, okay. He says, this is my boss's number, Mike Dobson. You'll be phoning him at home. And of course, that was the plausible deniability for them. If the phone call went bad, it just never happened. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't on company phones on company time. And they just wanted to buy the world, lock, stock, and wizard. That's how the realms, because I'd been writing about it so much in Dragon, it was like, oh, maybe this guy does have a world at home. And then I started sending package after package after package. And the uh, map was the second package. And Jeff taped it together. And he was like, woo! But yeah, I had maps for all the cities and many of the villages and tons of dungeons. And I just kept sending and sending until Jeff said, stop! <laughs> There's still more? Wait a second. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. There's tons of stuff that, that hasn't been published. Someday, right? Someday, yes. Okay. Do you still play um, in those? Oh worlds? yeah, you and you still have. Is it still some of the same crew? Like, yes, the the home realms players are all over the world. Um, so uh, we had some years ago devolved playing twice a year, and it's even more sporadic now because people do have to climb on planes to have play sessions. So it used to be the August civic holiday, the the first weekend in August public holiday at my cottage, and then New Year's Day usually somewhere in the city at Andrew Dewar's or wherever people would bring their hangovers um, from, from New Year's Eve and play. So yeah, well, we do still occasionally play. Um, I play with lots of other people in the realms. I'll be running the realms this Saturday at Phantasm in Peterborough. Nice. Um, I, I just paused in writing the new adventure <laughs> to, to, and, and that adventure also has to be multi-purposed into a first time D and D adventure from my library ladies at the end of the year. So they have to experience D&D for the first time. So a low-level village wander around trying to figure out what's going on as people are disappearing and leaving only blood behind. There's a ghost that comes every night. Ooh. That sounds fun. Yeah. that That's what the realms is all about, baby. Fun! Yeah, um, well, yeah. sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Let's talk about craft for a little bit here. World building. I mean, yes, you're a fantastic writer, but as a world builder, I, I'm going to throw around the word maestro. I mean, there's there's so many layers to what you do. And, and a person can ask you a question and you can quickly explain the political history and how, how this came about and how this influenced it. As a world builder, that's hard enough to do on a small level. You do it on a massive level with a lot of pieces all the time. How do you do it? I, I, that's what I'm getting at is, do you, like, from an actual craft point of view, do you just have a lot of notebooks and journals and you set aside a certain amount of time every day? Or is this just what happens in your head all the time? Or Yes, I'm crazy. It's okay. what happens in my Perfect. head all the time. You listen to the voices. Um, I, I would love to be the organized guy who had all the notebooks, but I've been so blamed busy since I was a little kid because I was always either in school or earning income from a job and my public library job, by the time the TSR was publishing the realms, 
my wife and I were commuting 120 miles a day to work and 120 oh. miles home from work every day, living in a century farmhouse. So when we got home with her aged parents, which meant when we got home, a light bulb had burned out or the stove was on the fritz or there'd been a funny noise in the wall. So I had something else to do, fall into bed exhausted, get up at the crack of dawn the next morning, lather, rinse, repeat. Right. So I didn't have any time for any of that. And I was also, as you can see around me or behind me, <laughs> tons of books. And I was buying and reading them all the time. And I was also reading at work. But the stuff I was reading at work as a point of ethics and principle, I was not reading my favorite fantasy and science fiction, which I'd grown up on in my father's den. I was reading the books I had to read for a public library. If you like Barbara Cartland, but you've read them all, or Grace Livingston Hill and her sister Ruth Livingston Hill, and you've read every last book and they've died, so there are no new ones, what else do you have that it's like that in this library that I can go home with in my hands? So I had to dip into everything, Daniel Steele, whatever. It wasn't whether it was my reading taste. I just had to read enough of it to know what was going on. And that led to some hilarious things like I'm handing out the outlandish, the outlandish books by Diana Gabaldon. There's a reserve list up to here and I know my patrons personally. So I'm, I'm, I'm checking it out and the bonking begins on page 85. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I mean, uh, my wife likes those books, so I get it. Yeah. 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 But I mean, uh, the, you, you, you never have enough time to be organized and clean the clutter around me. I moved out to the country because I have like 400,000 books, mainly in shipping containers out in the yard. And the house is crammed every, every room in the house. Yes. Including the bathrooms has bookshelves crammed with books and there's there's everything's out of order i i can see looking at your shelves behind you that is a reader's collection there's stuff propped there's stuff crammed oh yeah there's stuff (laughs) pulled out because you needed it recently and you looked at it um my life is the same way so i would love to be beautifully organized but i am not so therefore the only way to do it is to go the other way I do compile always expanding electronic files on my computer of the last time I mentioned something or in in passing, I gave the heraldic colors for something like that. I jot that down so I can find it again because somebody's going to ask because mm-hmm. everybody's there's always somebody new to the game who knows nothing of this stuff, who has not been buying stuff for 50 years and who asks what seems to them a logical question and everybody else groans you could just buy and read the book but of course they don't know the book exists it's long out of print it's from a previous edition it's not their fault and i'm I'm not there to rain on their parade i'm there to help them and say oh yeah okay here it is so then that is constant i have questions lists i probably never live long enough to answer all of them which is why i started doing all these videos and so on Mm -hmm. because i can answer it for anybody who watches, not just the one person who asked on Twitter. Right. And, and that becomes increasingly useful to people because I can plant dungeon master adventure ideas without definitively saying you have to have this in this spot. I can just like give a tired person who is just as busy as I have, who comes home from work shucks off their shoes oh i gotta have a bath or a shower i stink i've got to get into my own clothes oh i gotta grab something to eat before the gang gets here for D. oh geez what am i gonna run tonight (laughs) 
you know, and if at work they have been um, <clears throat> illicitly peeking <laughs> at Twitter or something, uh, and they say, oh, wait, Greenwood talked about yeah. beholders giving birth to mind flayer tadpoles today. Ah, and there I have my, my, have my idea for the night. And if I've helped somebody that way, then that's what it's for. It's not about the money because I'm in gaming. There is no money. <laughs> it, it's about having fun <laughs> together. So in, in world building, especially these days with the big, massive worlds that you see both in tabletop and in digital role-playing and video games, there's a lot of people involved. It's very much a collaborative effort. So there's a lot of hands in the pot, but at the same time, as the original creator, you probably want to maintain some sort of integrity of the core concept it came from, or at least you don't want the Forgotten Realms becoming Dark Sun. You don't want it becoming Planescape. And don't get me wrong, I love Dark Sun and I loved it Planescape, but how does a person express that need or and in some way still have some hand on the wheel? Or is that even possible, I guess, is my question. Uh, these days, it probably isn't possible because the... the business model for Wizards of the Coast, and you may have noticed in 5th edition, they're keeping the game stuff fairly firmly on the Sword Coast. Yeah. And that's so that they can tell third-party licensees, you have a free hand. Just set your thing somewhere else. Uh -huh. And of course, what did the licensees do? They said it in Neverwinter and Baldur's Gate on the Sword Coast. But, but I mean, <laughs> because they want to be able to um, plunder the lore, the rich lore that's already there. Right. But in theory, and the reason why they wouldn't probably accept my Thay book that I did with Alex Cameron, Alan Patrick as a core realms thing. Whereas they did accept border kingdoms as canon right. border kingdoms are on the sword coast. Hmm. They is not. So these days it's very hard to do that, which is one of the reasons I'm doing the videos to put out the information that I no longer have an outlet with dragon <laughs> magazine gone. And with me not doing my own canon books coming from the publisher, because the whole model of how they do share the game with people has changed. But in the old days, I was able to have an undue amount of influence for the very simple reason that Jeff Grubb was smart enough to stay in contact with me. And he would unofficially tell people things like, well, why don't you just phone Ed? or I'll phone Ed for you, and we'll see what he has. And so they'd say, hey, Ed, what do you got on this? And I'd say, oh, I got some stuff. Okay, can you FedEx it tomorrow? Because we need it by end of week. Or somebody would ghost them on a product, or things would get incredibly screwed up, and production needed to publish it next week. And I get a phone call from, say, Julia Martin saying, hey, Ed, what are you doing tonight? And I'd say, now I'm doing whatever you need me to do, Julia, because <laughs> I knew that tone of voice of right. near panic. And she'd say, how about 34 pages of wizard spells? Um, Eric Boyd is doing this. And, and, we, and we'd just all hand her big slices. And she'd work through the weekend off the clock and put a product together because production needed it next week. And therefore... You get an undue amount of influence, even though you're not on staff. Eric Boyd is not on staff, and everybody else is not, because you're writing chunks of products for them, and therefore you have a chance to make it canon. You do not have a chance to carefully consider everything and dovetail it and talk it over. You just don't have that chance. So those chances become drinking sessions at Gen Cons 
in anticipation of what we may be called upon to do later in in service thank you for your service uh that's <laughs> uh but you see what we're doing at the time is rescuing people's butts and because of that and and the smart people at tsr would learn to lean on me they'd say yeah ed can you i've been asked to do you know zoblobs of the zingle bit what do you got at home on zoblobs and i would i'd say can you give me a week and they'd say sure i'm i'm calling you now because i'm doing three products at once as usual and i'd say okay do the other products i will give you 20 or 30 pages of finished publishable text i mean you could change it all but i mean it will be written text it won't be full of obscenities and insert a generic battle here uh, it'll be finished text that you could use in the, in the book if you want i'll give that to you in a couple of weeks and that would become the foundation of whatever product they wanted to do and then they would write the cool bits they wanted to add like the mating habits of dragons or whatever on top of that knowing that i'd covered this is the lore stuff so this guy up in canada knows where all the skeletons are buried and he knows where all the the burial sites and closets are for these skeletons so i can rely on him as the guy who sees the entire tapestry and then i can add my fiddly bits and let's face it and and people would would ask me this when when new designers came on and did crazy things they'd say how do you feel and i said look this is a new designer he's just been given the keys to the vet he's going to want to drive the vet oh yeah that's his reward he gets to do some creative stuff and add his stamp or her stamp to the realms and put stuff. I'm not going to stop them. If it doesn't fit, I'm going to say so loudly and quickly. And I'm going to suggest how they can dovetail. I'm not going to tell them to throw it away. I'm going to suggest how they can stitch it to the tapestry so it looks like it belongs there. Because that's my job, to keep the tapestry going and to let everybody have their fun. So that's how I got the influence by staying around. And that lasted into the Wizards of the Coast era. And then increasingly we were made to be fiction authors and not game designers because the game designers had to be in house because the Hasbro model was far greater control over IP. The, the IP control that TSR exercised was oh, you can't wander around the building without an escort because you might see sensitive IP because you're not on staff. And it was like, I might see the realms, <laughs> you know? And and this was absolutely hilarious because I remember when Doug Niles left the company, Jeff gleefully told me the story of he came back the next week to have lunch with somebody and the secretary very shamefacedly stopped him in the lobby and said, oh, Mr. Niles, you can't, you can't go anywhere without an escort you're not on staff and he goes oh okay could you call bruce Hurd or whoever he knew would be there to give him an escort she said certainly and she went back to her switchboard to do that and he started fiddling opening the glass display cases in the front lobby and fiddling with the awards in there and she said what are you doing mr nine she says oh i'm just admiring all the awards i won for this company <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the, they have always had the ip they want to control and they don't want you to know the truth about the ip and its direction until they leak something mm. you know their control of sharing information and so therefore they don't want people outside the company now i have always known a lot more than i'm supposed to do because everybody phones me or emails me and i can put two and two together if you ask me about the yeti 
of this mountain range, yeah. then I have a fairly good idea that at some time in the future that information will be needed. And if I get six or seven questions and I suddenly get brand new accounts on my Discord or at Twitter asking me questions and they are coming, I've never heard of these people before, but they're all asking me about the same thing from different directions. I know what's going on. <laughs> I'm not stupid. I'm I'm just politician stupid, as in selective deafness stupid. Oh, okay. Um so I was gonna uh, ask. I can I, I can figure out what's going on. But and and usually when that happens, I pick the most reliable source out of these people and say, okay, the only thing that you really have to remember about this topic is X, or make sure you dovetail it with Y. And then I'm happy no matter what the heck else you do, because it will therefore be part of the tapestry. And they get that. I mean, they're not an evil empire. They are fellow designers trying to do things with too little time, always. So they, great, you're going to help me? Good. And all I have to do is this? Fine. And therefore, the realm sort of hangs together as this weird, creaky ship, sort of like a, a Microsoft program that everybody's bolted things onto for years, <laughs> and it still creaks along. Well, that's, that's what makes it magical, though, is it kind of belongs to everybody now. Like and That's right. It does. Yeah. And I, I can't bitch about that, and I don't mind, it, mind that, because I burned that bridge back in 1986. It is everybody's world now, and that's okay. The one thing it can do now that my realms, my realms, couldn't do for me is surprise me. Because my realms, every single thing in it was in it because I put it there. And I knew it was around every next corner. It was either nothing or this that I'd already put there. But now, when new products come out, the realms can surprise me. And luckily for me, and it is, and it is a tribute to the, the common sense and sensitivity of the in-house designers and the creativity of the freelancers doing novels and so forth, those are usually pleasant surprises, not what the, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it usually feels right. The additions feel right because they picked up the cues that are already there and just amplified them into this corner of the realms is like this as opposed to i've decided we're going to have talking bathtub duckies <laughs> hey that'd be all right <laughs> yeah i'd be all right but i i need to see the explanation boy would i need to see yeah, the no toad. yeah but at, at this point do you think perhaps everybody just loves the realm so much that they respect it they want to make sure it stays true to that spirit like i think so and and you can see things like the Baldur's Gate 3 games, because people persist in sharing the, the cutscenes they've stumbled across with me. Mm. Look at this bit! You know, and there are little nuances of style and costume, and well, that this costume doesn't surprise me, because John Shindahedi was art director at Wizards of the Coast. John Shindahedi is now art director at Larian Studios. Same guy, yeah. you know, um, but I mean, there are, there are moments in those cutscenes where I say, yeah, this is the realms. People are talking the right way. They're behaving the right way. Um, the, there's one with uh, uh, Shadowheart. I don't want to spoil her for somebody, but she makes a, a, a moral decision. And another character says to her, lay a hand on me as a friend. And, and I go, yes, that's the realms. They've captured it right. Nice. You know, um, yeah, moments like that. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it, you're right. It is that they respect the living world they all want to play in the sandbox mm -hmm. if the realms is their haven and their refuge even though it's sometimes not a comfortable or safe place to live in 
they want to feel that it's the realms. They don't want ever to say this isn't the realms. This this it's wrong. You know, they don't want that. Yeah. They don't want to be jolted out of their happy place. So they want it to go on being their happy place, which funnily enough, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> wow, look how that works out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, you mentioned video with Baldur's Gate video games. Um, guys like Jeff Grubb, Bruce Nesmith, and many others have made the jump from from TSR and tabletop role playing into video games. You've put your hand to a couple of video games in the past, but the one that caught my eye was uh, Borealis's games, Mage of Mistralia. I hope I remember that Mage, right. Mages of Mistralia. That's yeah. it. That's a really fun, quirky game. And when I looked it up, like I played it back when it came out and then I looked it up recently mm -hmm. getting ready for this and I didn't realize you were the writer on it. Yep. <laughs> what like what was that experience like going from writing for tabletop and writing into worlds that are very familiar to something so different and and fun and quirky? Oh well, some things never change. And I'd already written the two towers way back in the day just for a chance to write in Middle Earth, mm -hmm. you know? And I immediately ran into because I, I I was given Rohan, so I'm gleefully mapping out, and they go, uh, Ed, um, we only have this much memory space for Rohan in the game, you can, <laughs> and you can only put this many things in, and the game uses polygons, oh, you can't do that in the game, you can't do that in the game. So you have to write within these limitations. Same thing with Mages of Australia. Now, the thing that attracted me to Mages of Australia was their innovative thing where you can build spells and combine them with a, that was like, oh, cool. I want to be a part of this. Okay. But they already had the name of the world, their basic protagonists and antagonists and the, the locations that you would go to worked out. And I was thinking, oh, this, this looks a little like Asterix with people are running along, you know, this is lovely. I like it. My job as writer was to provide a backstory that linked all the locations and made what happens in the game make sense from a story point of view. So they had already given me all the elements. I wasn't making up most of those. I was making up some minor names, but not all of them. But I was putting together the world and potential sequels. I was setting up potential sequels, which I am still in the aid on. So, um, and, and that led to Spearhead, another company, and the one of the things I'm doing now. So I, 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 I have my foot in the gaming world in three ways. Uh, the computer gaming world. I get to voice characters, particularly when somebody does a, a realms game. I get to step in and be Elminster or whatever. Right or I get, to, I get to provide the narration or uh, a voice channel talk through. Of, oh, I designed this because of this sort of thing. Gotcha. Um, and, and the other thing I get to do is this sort of whole game writing. And... For Spearhead, it's the same thing. I'm making the factions in the world, developing them from the ones they already had. I'm making the whole story make sense. And then I'm writing endless dialogue. If you say this to this character, this is what the character will do. In the same way, if you're looking at if you're unfamiliar with all these computer games and you look at Baldur's Gate, you see the dialogue and there's a, a list of things you can say and a list of things in gold that you can do, like leave. <laughs> uh, and and I'm doing those. I'm doing the dialogue tree and the stuff. And I'm trying to um, maintain a consistent tone. But it's still all just telling a story. And 
if you ever wrote choose your own adventure books or pick a pass books or whatever you want to call them. And I did write a few back in the day mm. and uh, I actually got handed by a long suffering publisher, the story tree of one of these books laid out, I think in a desperate attempt to stop me <laughs> making their choose their own adventure book end up to be six inches thick, <laughs> you know, because I was trying to right. tell too much of a story and not circle back ever to the same prompts you know if you came here from 17c go to if you came here from 56b go to you know uh, i thought oh that what what a cop out i want more of a story so i was <laughs> you know um uh, but i i learned how the storytelling uh, format and so therefore in in the same way that i i had fun in my youth finishing a harlequins for you know it was like you learn what is needed and you provide it mm -hmm. and you you provide it usually in a day or <laughs> in very short order because right. they need it. Um, and it, it's not about you. It's about the story. And that's the main thing that all DMs have to remember. It's not about you. It's about the story. And your players are telling the story. You are nudging them into telling the story. That's your job. You play all the supporting cast and nudge them into unfolding the story for you with their choices. And if you don't give them enough choices, it's not a good game. Right. What is it you look for when you're designing those those branching narratives that still make a player feel like, hey, I have a choice here, or hey, I still have an impact here? It's the same choices you make in real life. A good real life, and I don't necessarily mean good by your viewpoint or a third-party bystander's viewpoint, but a satisfying life is where you make moral choices that matter you affect your life with choices that have consequences and that will have a lasting effect and you feel that you your choosing was right not necessarily that you made the right choice you may have made the wrong choice and you realize it later and it was disastrous but you had the chance to make the choice you consciously made a choice you thought you were making the best choice you could under the circumstances, so you feel satisfied about it. That's where you feel the agency. I chose. Uh, the, the example I always give is in the movie Excalibur and Patrick Stewart's character. I saw what I saw. The boy drew the sword. If a boy draws the sword, then a boy shall be the king of all England. You know, because his religious belief, that character, he believes this prophecy. It doesn't matter that it's, what is this you're trying to foist off on us, Merlin, a motherless boy? You know, he's he knows he's going to end up in a fight with the other barons. And yet he says to them, you know, because they say, are you with him or are you with us? And, and he says, I saw what I saw. In other words, he's saying, you bastards don't like this candidate so you're going to deny what you just saw happen and you're going to decide for yourselves you have no faith you don't believe in the gods you don't believe in in the prophecy you don't believe that there should be a rightful king you want the rightful king to be you or the puppet you can control that you put there i am going to do the right thing and of course it immediately means his castle is besieged and we see that you know, but I mean, he made the right choice. It's not an easy choice. I mean, he could lose his life. His daughter, whom we seem 
um, holding on to him on the walls, she could die in it too. I mean, everything he stands for could be swept away, but he makes the choice because he thinks it's the right choice. If you do that in your unfolding story, in your narrative, at the gaming table or in your novel, those are the moments that everybody remembers. There's a, a, a fantasy called College Magics by Carolyn Stevermer. And in that book, a young girl, the main character, is sent to a finishing school in a fantasy version of Europe. It's a sort of Graustark Europe. And her uncle is regent of Galazon, the duchy that she is going to be duchess of when she's of age. And he's doing all sorts of things because he's basically an evil swindler. And there's a point in the book at which she confronts him about one of the things he did to a local family, like seizing stuff that was theirs. And she said, you know, in effect, why did you do that? And, and, and he says, well, I just took it. You can do it too. You can take anything you want. And in effect, I'm paraphrasing here. She says, no, uncle, I couldn't. I couldn't. In other words, she's saying, you're an asshole. You, you have no honor. You're a, a thief and a cheat. You can do it without even turning a hair. I cannot do that. And, and the reader is immediately seeing, okay, she is fit to be the ruler. This, this uncle of hers is not. He, he will just misuse his power in office. She will not. And, and um, it's those, if you give the player or you give the reader, or if you do it in real life with your own life, enough moral choices and you figure you did the best you could at the moment of choosing and you figure that you were given a choice mm -hmm. as opposed to you get cancer or your dad dies suddenly or whatever you know life takes a choice away from you and you know your life is now on a different trajectory and you had no say in it and that's when they say life isn't fair well you know how old are you you know, you're 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 older than five and you still think life is fair. You're an idiot. You know, but but I mean, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, we feel better when we feel we got to make the choices. So that's what you do in a good branching game. You make sure that the few choices that you have space word count to give them really matter. And they feel good about the choices they made, not random choices like the lady and the tiger by Frank R. Stockton, mm -hmm. you know the left door or the right door behind one is a lady that you get to marry behind the other is the hungry tiger that will devour you, but you don't know which one it is. And that story ends with the princess that he cannot have. The reason why he's facing this arena life and death challenge. She raises her hand. They look, she look, he looks up at her. I can never have you. It's over, you know, and she gestures ever so slightly. So her father, the King won't see it towards one of the two doors and then the, the story ends on a cliffhanger you don't know what she's sending him to yeah and that's a cheat choice it makes for a, a really dramatic short story if you end it there on the cliffhanger but in an ongoing narrative that's a a cheat because like a badly written choose your own adventure you don't know what the consequences of your choice are because you weren't given enough information to make an informed choice so you make the choice and you turn to the page you die and you go, thanks. <laughs> you feel ripped off. Whereas 
if the narrative had given you clues, you could say, um, as we saw in the Princess Bride with the two poison cups. Mm. You know, I cannot, obviously, I cannot drink from the goblet closest to you because, you know, and, and it's hilarious. We all laugh at that scene. But yeah, he's working out, out loud in front of us, all of his choices. Yeah. And we feel better and he feels better. He dies laughing, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> because he got to make the choice. Right. He may have made the wrong choice, but he got to make the choice. That's what it's all about. And, and that's why being in charge of your life means you set up your choices. You don't let life happen to you. There's a, there's a saying that Will Shetterly and his group came up with. If you don't do politics, politics will be done to you. It's a good saying. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. Don't be the innocent bystander all the time. You can be the innocent bystander when you say, no, this is a choice that such and such has to work out for themselves. So as a parent or as a family member, I won't step in and start talking. I will step back and give them the chance to make. It's the old thing of, well, how will they learn if they don't screw up for themselves? So I will step back and allow them to screw up for themselves because then they'll really learn the lesson. There you go. So basically what you're saying is the trick is to make sure that they're meaningful choices, that people have information before they make choices, and that there's consequences to those in a game, not in real life necessarily, but maybe in real life. Yeah. And all those old things we had when we were little kids, uh, you know, the, the farmer, the boat, the, the chickens, the fox, you know, that sort of thing. You have to get across the river. Uh, yeah, the old, the old, you can't have it all. So uh, you can't grab. And, and the, the other way of doing it is the house is burning down. You only have time to grab one thing. And that was the old Sherlock Holmes thing. Yeah. The, the, the young mother will grab her baby. The unwed woman will grab her jewelry case. And I mean, he's being sexist in these obvious time, Victorian, everything. But it's like, okay, what will you grab? You cannot have it all. You don't have time in life to have it all. Are you going to be happy or are you going to be rich? Uh, are you going to have children or are you going to have money? Which of the two is it? <laughs> That's a real uh, one right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here we are back to real life again. But yeah. the same thing, you, you set it up in a, in a narrative. You set it up at the gaming table in an unfolding game. And then people have to choose the one that seems right to them at that moment. And they may look at you and say, you bastard. <laughs> you know, to you when, the, when you are the dungeon master. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, I have also had players, former players that I ran one session at the library or one session at their high school when I came and visited years ago, come back to me and say, thanks for that. I hated your guts at the time. But then, you know, like 30 years later, I had to make a choice. And I thought back to that game. And I think I made the right choice. I'm not sure yet, but you'd, you'd given me practice in choice making. I practiced it just like we practiced. When I was in high school, we practiced taking the tire off the teacher's car and then putting it back on again. Oh yeah. Cause he said, he said, you may need to know this when you're, when you get a flat somewhere, yeah, yeah. won't your dad be proud of you or your mom be proud of you, particularly if it's you and her alone in the car and she's wearing her best dress and she doesn't want to kneel down and get dirty. And you go, don't worry, I got this. Yeah. And you do it. And she will be impressed as all heck because you could. And it's just because you had practice in doing it. But it doesn't work if you stand at the back of the class and let all the other people do it and don't get your hands dirty because you won't remember it. Right. But if you got in there and did it, 
then you've lived a richer life. In a way, that's what games are, a way for us to practice things in a safe space. Yeah, and I saw that um, from early Gen Cons, hmm. uh, because all of those things where people sit around and say, yeah, I, I got to tell you about the time my character killed Asmodeus and your eyes glaze over. <laughs> and, and if they have any sensitivity at all and can read social cues, they go, oh, I guess you had to be there. And they're right. Mm -hmm. You had to be there to share the experience. But I now understand why all these scarred old men who used to gather at the fire hall and play cards all day. You know, my grandfather would walk down to get the mail and he'd take me with him. And then he'd drop in onto the fire hall at, on the way back. And I'd say, why do you do that, Grand You don't smoke. These guys sit there smoking all day. And you know you have to be home, so you can't sit down and join their endless card game. But these were all old guys who'd fought in the war together. They were reliving their experiences when they were young and strong. And they did things that mattered. They did their little bit to save the world, and they shared that experience. And I saw that at Gen Cons when gamers who played through things together. So these are fat, out of shape, or thin, in shape gamers sitting around on their butts around a table, but they shared the same experience of having great adventures together and doing things. And it forged that bond. The same bond that if you played on the football team in college or whatever, it is a bond that you have formed with these people and it matters to you. So, yeah, even though it's imaginary, it still matters. It still changes our minds. It still makes us feel like we were part of a band of brothers. Again, gender specific term, but, you know, um, we, we were together. We were part of a team and we worked together as a team. And Gary... In the early editions of D&D, it's designed to force you to work as a team. No character is good at everything. You have to work together to accomplish anything. That's what he's forcing, problem-solving as a team. Mm -hmm. Long before we had role-playing as a corporate thing, you know, <laughs> where people learn how to bond and go on retreats. and you know, uh, No, it was like, hey, we go to, we go to Gen Con and we play around a table and we learn how to get along with people from all over the world with funny accents and we accomplish stuff together and we kill Asmodeus. Okay. So talking about the power of storytelling and games together, the ability to use games as a training tool and how stories are an evolutionary tool of humanity to pass along wisdom and to, I guess at the core of this whole podcast that this whole social experiment I'm running is this idea, this question I have that I think there is a, sh a, a shared space in the center of performance arts, writing, music, tabletop role-playing, video games, board games, comic books. All of these things kind of share something where you can have people like yourself or Jim Zub or Mark, uh, Matthew Mercer, all these different people from completely different walks of life can meet up and it's like there's a shared thing that just suddenly conversations flows like it mm -hmm. there's a sacred space in the middle what in your opinion is the common thread that pulls all these people together mm. that that's yeah that's odd because yeah i met jim zub instant friendship mm -hmm. same with matt mercer you know instant friends i think it's because we're all trying to make the world a brighter place by telling stories and that's what it is to be human when when i was a little kid we were told oh no man is the only tool maker 
which is not true. That we were already ignoring scientist reports about the apes, the primates, tool making, and mm-hmm. then there are birds that are Mag- tool makers magpies, and all the rest of it, you yeah. know, all this stuff. But but no, the thing that makes mankind humankind, excuse me, now that uh, again showing my age, um, unique. We think we can't be sure because mm-hmm. for all we know, dolphins do it. Is we tell stories, we explain the world to our young people, like, no, don't put your hand on the hot stove, it will burn you. Um, do not go down into the open maw of the shark because you will not be seen again, right? We will not find Nemo. Uh, <laughs> um, we, we, we make sense of the world by telling stories about it to each other, and we, we also lay possibilities before people which is we've all been talking about now here choices in in narrative we are we are suggesting possibilities well you could do this or you could do that or i saw in this movie that if you fall out of the skyscraper inevitably somebody will grab you before you splat because i've seen it in movies don't try this in real life folks yeah, yeah. disclaimer uh, <laughs> <laughs> Taking that point of view and, and understanding that with stories being so important to the movement of humanity and, and mankind, humankind, what burden does that place on today's storytellers who are exploring new mediums, new spaces, new ways of telling story, especially during a time when society is facing some crises and some turbulence, does that pass along a, a burden? To storytellers? Yes. Don't cheat your reader. Don't lie to your reader. If politicians are lying to their people, if we can see deceit all around us, if we can see spin, you can you can mock spin, you can do satire of spin, you can label it in your stories and point at it by having one character, Terry Pratchett was a master of this in his satires, pointing out. And, and you don't even have to do it with vicious um, or cruel intent. You can just provide three or four different styles. If you look at the witches, Granny Weatherwax, Nanny Og, and Magrat, they all have very different styles. Mm-hmm. And you see Granny sniffing at Magrat when we first see her. She says, oh, these young people, all dangly earrings, black clothes, and no underwear. You know, <laughs> She's just, you know, and, <laughs> but you can point at yeah. characters having, you, you just do three different styles and you see people working things out in their own style. And um, there's a wonderful thing, a short story or a novella called Of Loaves and Little Fishes that Terry did, which is where Granny Weatherwax, who has won the witches contest, the magic contest when the witches all get together every year. Mm-hmm. And then a do-gooder social organizer bossy type woman called lettuce um heads a delegation coming to her that maybe this year she should uh refrain from entering to give someone else a try mm-hmm. and granny does and we watch what happens and is he, he was very good at pointing out what it is to be human all our little foibles all our little tricks all our deceits and I think we as storytellers have a responsibility to not railroad choices, but to lay out the possibilities so that the reader who is 
by definition intelligent if they can take shape squiggles of ink on a page and form them into meaning in their minds when they're reading anything they are intelligent yeah period um and young children don't have to be shielded from things they are quite intelligent and they can handle more than their parents think they can always because they've always had to not just in wartime but in wartime too mm -hmm. you know we reacted shock and horror at child soldiers but guess what they did what they had to do in the situation they are, were human they they pushed ahead we also have to a duty to make sure that our narratives are accessible to all you don't have to put someone of every skin color and someone of every sexual orientation and something in your stories you don't have to tokenism them up the wazoo but you have to make them speak universally so that everybody can see something of relevant to themselves in the story i mean science fiction writers have been doing with talking robots and talking beetly bloop aliens you know from you know since jules verne onwards um and they aren't representative of every, you know, choice or walk of life or background or heritage or bloodline. They're, they are weird creatures, but we see ourselves in them because of the way that the story is written. And therefore, we can empathize with them. We can care about what happens to them. We can follow the story and we have some incentive to follow the story. And the last thing is your story should be uplifting in some way in that you have to give your you're handing people hope um and yes yes there's value in downer stories like say all quiet on the western front because you are trying to point in that case at something moral so can we not make the same mistake again right. look what this turns into but i think in this time in our world you have to hold out hope mm -hmm. because everybody is looking for it and everybody feels the need for it. So do it. And it's great when you do the thing where the little kid or the overlooked one or the forgotten one or the disposable oldster who's just a drag on the community and they're waiting for them to die so they can at least get their house sort of thing, steps forward and does something or sacrifices themselves or shows the way or applies old knowledge and said you know when i was young uh sure grandpa why don't you tell us we just did this and then the car started like this mm -mm. and you go oh <laughs> uh, so that moment where everybody gets and that's the other thing when you're designing a role-playing adventure make sure every player at the table and their character has a moment to shine in the story if they don't seize it that's on them but if you don't provide it that's on you. Right. That's important. Okay, quick fire questions. Just top of your head, what are you playing these days? Everything. Uh, I'm playing d and I'm playing all the things that get sent to me for review, and there are a lot of them. <laughs> um, and I am uh, playing it, also live plays because I'm recording those with uh, Six Sides of Gaming, Tommy yep. Gofton and his crew. Um, and there are others, uh, J. Scott, Lord Gasumba, we, we do two drink minimum there um, <laughs> in Greyhawk. Nice. Um, and, and there are other life place things that I, um, nice. for a while there, I was part of Quest for the Cure, um, 
for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, where we were, um, again, playing another um, wonderful group of adventures and screwing up in, in all the planes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> all right, next one. What is your favorite non-realms world? Hmm. I don't know if I have one. Okay. Because I there are so many I enjoy. Uh, Tommy Gofton and his friends, um, Devin Wilson and Adam, um, are working on Imaria, which is their own setting, and I'm I'm dabbling in that now. So that's what I'm I'm enjoying. Nice. Uh, the Spearhead guys, I'm working on their world right now, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I love my favorite worlds from fiction: Middle Earth, Amber. Um, the Discworld. Um, right. There are others I pick up, uh, um, and I can also enjoy really skilled writers like Guy K, who are basically doing fantasy versions of our real world from a different angle with each book. And there are many um, worlds that I enjoy. I don't know if I've picked one favorite because I'm greedy. No, I want right. them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like asking a wine connoisseur what's their very favorite. I mean, yeah, exactly. Or, or asking a parent, what's your favorite? Which one is of your children is your favorite in front of all the yeah, children? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> we don't have favorites. Wink, wink. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are you, uh, what are you reading right now? Everything. Okay. Just like, uh, um, yeah. Um, Oathbreaker by um, Marie. Uh, we launched the book at CanCon and uh, she officially had her book birthday today, the official release. So I picked it up and reread it again. Nice. It was time. I've got tons of books sitting on my to be read pile. Um, there are some I'm enjoying, some I'm going, eh, that's an interesting experiment. Uh, <laughs> and then there are all the library books I have to read. And uh, I'm fascinated to read cookbooks. <laughs> uh, uh, I delved into an old classic many times reprinted, the Nero Wolf cookbook. Oh, because I was at my sister's and she had it on her bookshelf. And this is a book that's been reprinted many times. And it's putting real recipes to the things that are mentioned in all the mystery stories. And, um, of course, Nero Wolf was this fictional character. is this huge fat man. He eats breakfast in bed. Um, his chef makes the scrambled eggs. Um, they have sherry in them. In the and, scrambled eggs. And he chides a woman uh, a female character who is a guest at the brownstone and he says oh you're making scrambled eggs how long do you take for your scrambled eggs she says, oh i don't know three four five minutes he goes oh because in his mind you cannot stir scrambled eggs for less than 20 minutes or they're not scrambled eggs you know and stuff like so there's many recipes in that book that i would never ever <laughs> dream of making but they're fun to read. Yeah, yeah. And this is, these are the pathways. So what am I reading right now? I work in public libraries. Yeah. I'm reading about 20 books at a time. Fair enough. And they're all sorts of things. Um, okay. Well, as somebody who's read everything, um, what is a book or a couple books you would recommend a young writer or game designer should make sure they have on their shelf? Okay. If you're talking about game design, like tabletop role-playing, world-building, yeah. that kind then of stuff. Then Robin Laws has written Hamlet's Hit Points, Beating the Story, and several other absolutely essential tomes for story structure. Okay. You should read The Hero's Journey by Campbell just for to, to know what to do or to avoid, depending on what your penchant is. And if it's for storytelling, uh, William Goldman wrote two bestsellers 
Adventures in the Screen Trade was the first one. His second book is called Which Lie Did I Tell? And the title comes from when he arrives 10 minutes early to go out to dinner with a, a, a Hollywood chum. So the Hollywood chum is jumping around his apartment, putting his pants on, and the phone rings. And he picks it up and answers it. And then he puts his hand over the mouthpiece. He says, it's so-and-so. Which lie did I tell him? <laughs> okay. But what the book does is it takes Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the Marathon Man, and Leopard in Darkness, three of Goldman's um, classic scripts, and the crop dusting scene from Hitchcock's North by Northwest, mm -hmm. and it analyzes them and tells you the difference between a novel or prose, what you can show on the screen, how to move the story along, how to give the audience the cues they need to understand the stakes in a scene in all these different formats. Buying and reading that book is as good as any number of screenwriting courses you might take in a post-secondary education institution. Um, and so those that I'd say would be the, the critical ones. And there are lots of books on gaming and so on. And I, I don't know, they might be useful to some people. And I would also say, if there are stories that really speak to you, that drag you along, they should be on your shelf. Mm -hmm. And it's different for all of us. Um, I would uh, make sure that Amber was there by Zelazny. I would make sure that uh, Lord of the Rings was there. I would make sure that John Belair's The Face in the Frost, which is a standalone because he died before he finished the second book. Um, I would make sure that's on the shelf because that's funny and horror fantasy all in a one-shot book. And there's lots and lots of other books. Uh, if I had a guidebook to fantasy writing, it would be Imaginary Worlds by Lynn Carter, okay. which he talks about the importance of names and uh, making sure the reader loves something in the book. Like, like if the kingdom is endangered and you, love, you are made to love the kingdom, then you're fighting for home. Or it, and and that's the tragedy that we see at the end of the Lord of Rings. Sorry, folks, if I'm spoiling it. You know, Middle Earth has been saved, but not for me. But for one character in the book, that's exactly what happens. Sam comes back, puts his arm around Rosie, and says, "Well, I'm home." Mm -hmm. You know. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we're gonna walk this out the door. Before we go, though, do you have any uh, projects or things you want to talk with? Just boost or promote, promote your YouTube channel. Obviously, I'm going to have links to that everywhere because that is so very interesting and educational and fun. I love it. But what okay. else? Anything else going on? <laughs> okay. So the, there are two things tied to that YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. One is if you're on Discord, Greenwood's Grotto, where I do answer some Realms lore questions and all sorts of Realms fans hang out and talk to each other and some of them provide recipes for Realms dishes they've made. They help each other with lore. They share funny memes. And they share characters and stuff from the Realms. And a lot of the real lore lords of the Realms, Brian Cortijo, uh, George Crashos, Eric Boyd, they show up there and answer questions. So there's that. Cool. There's my Patreon, which also has the scripts from all the videos and other stuff I write up. And they all cycle around all um, with the YouTube channel as well. Okay. Uh, so those are the sort of revisit the realms. I am working on 
a computer game with Spearhead Studios right now. I think it's uh, I think it's called uh, the main the main title is Witchstone, and I think it there's a there's an unforetold or unforeseen that goes in front of that, and I can't remember what they've chosen, but it, Witchstone okay. by Spearhead. Um, there are I'm working on Imaria. I'm working on something I can't talk about for that company. Uh-huh. I'm just looking down here. Yeah. What am I allowed to talk about? Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, Fate of the Norns, uh, the Viking role-playing game, which uses runes, not dice, that uh, Andrew Volkoskis out of Montreal is the designer for. I am working with him on Othkliath, or Aki, which is, as happened in real life, Viking rule Dublin. <laughs> but in this edition of Fate of the Norns, Ragnarok has begun. The fourth age of Ragnarok specifically, the world is dark and cold, the sun and moon have been devoured, and everybody who's anybody in the world is rushing to this one city, the city of golden slaves, um, Viking rule Dublin, where the king, the one-eyed king, taxes at 100%, and nobody knows what he does with the money. You do if you're a Norn in the game, but nobody in the game knows. And um, I'm writing a complete detailed fantasy city, 96 city blocks, every building. Every building has an NPC with a detailed backstory, which is an adventure hook. So you can blackmail them instead of fighting them if you want. And every single building is covered. And it has taken me three years so far, and I'm still going. And we have the overview book and the first third of the city in a deep dive. And they will come out in a box set later this year, uh, all the Norse gods willing. And then I have to do the rest of the city, the other two thirds. And then we'll start on the tenth city. And then we'll start on the, anyway. Uh, so there's that big mammoth project. And I am writing tons of little things for tons of little people. And I will probably forget most of them. Oh, there's one. Oh, yeah. I can't talk about that yet. <laughs> um, no, seriously. I'm no, just no, going I, down my... I'm uh, laughing because, because... They're all on my desktop, which is why my eyes are roving off. And I'm going, no, NDA, no, NDA, no, NDA. But yeah, I, I'm and I'm I'm helping with lots of little realms things done by others, too, on the DM skill. Nice. Um, Mulhoron just came out from one of them. So, um, um, yeah, I'm having fun with that. Sounds like you're having fun with lots of stuff. Oh, yeah, that's how you avoid writer's block and getting bogged down. You work on so many things that you never have time to sleep. Oh, there. There you go. Insomnia takes yeah. over and you're, you're good. Yeah, I can sleep in the car when I'm driving somewhere. There you go. All right, that's it. That's all. We're done. Cool. Thanks for uh, thanks for sitting down and chatting with me. Thank you for having me. It's been great fun. Let's do it again. And as you can tell, keeping me on topic and getting through half the stuff you wanted to do is a challenge. Challenge! <laughs> well, the boss is telling me that it's once again time to close up shop. But before I lock those doors, I just want to say a huge thank you to Ed for joining us today and sharing his incredible insights. And to you, dear listener, thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, leave a review, spread the word, and hey, don't forget to hit that divinely inspired subscribe button. We'll be back with more amazing guests and topics. But in the meantime, take care in your journeys, Wanderer. I hope to see you again soon, here at the corner of Story and Game.